Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Back in Los Angeles, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And joining us straight out of the coach's office in Nashville, Tennessee, it's the coach, Corey Burton. What's up, gentlemen? Uh, glad to be back. Uh, school is back in session tomorrow. We're actually maybe going to get some snow. I don't know. I'm going to do my snow dance anyway um, and, and hope for the best, but uh, you never know. All right, all right, all right. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't introduce the third amigo in the second city, man who rang in the new year, keeping it little yachty in the yacht club. It is our intrepid blogger (laughs) from Counting, Josh Cook. Yeah, you know, I've got friends in high places. A friend of a friend (laughs) owns a boat, so we got to go over to a yacht club for part of our New Year's celebration. Did you sing I'm a boat, I'm on a boat with T-Pain while you were there? Uh, No, the, uh, the crowd was a big fan of uh, Mariah and Beyonce. So there was a lot of uh, some divas going on. You know, I can always get behind some Mariah though. That's my girl from the start, even though, even with her meltdown on new year's Eve, I'm still, I still always ride or die with Mariah. Well, you know what? I'm going to blame Ryan Seacrest for that. That's when, in doubt, when in doubt, just blame him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that is always a a very good rule to live by. But on today's show, um, obviously, uh, bowl season has wrapped up outside of the national title game. So we'll be talking about the rematch uh, here coming up next Monday uh, uh, here in a little bit. But first, we're going to take a look back at some of the bowls that uh, we have not covered uh, through our uh, extended hiatus last week in bowl season due to traveling and illnesses. Uh, We are back. So we're going to just, you know, put a bow on some of these bowls and we're going to start with what was i think far and away the most entertaining game if not the best played game that was the granddaddy of them all with uh too bad keith jackson wasn't calling it around have been whoa nelly but uh usc uh with the field goal as time expired to win uh sam darnold breaking all sorts of rose bowl records that was one for the ages 52 49 over penn state uh Looked like it was going to be all USC early. Then Penn State scored 49 points in the second and third quarters, but uh, couldn't hold off the comeback. Uh, I know you guys were watching. So, Josh, uh, what were your, some of your thoughts here from, from this one? Well, my biggest surprise was just Penn State's last drive after it got to be a tie game. Not much time left. They went super aggressive, but, you know, that they tempted fate on that first pass that should have been intercepted. And it looked like he threw into – Triple coverage, and then the very next play, McSorley guns it right back into triple coverage. And then it ultimately was picked. They had the lengthy return, which set up the chip shot field goal. Um, I just don't get those two play calls. I love being aggressive, but it's a tie game. USC just scored the touchdown, so they're feeling good about themselves. I hate the word momentum, and I don't really agree with it. But obviously USC would have had a little bit more energized sideline by tying it late. Just, you know, be smart with your chances and go into overtime with McSorley going just 25 yards. Penn State has to feel like they're, they've got the advantage in an overtime situation. That was my big takeaway. But fun game. Really fun game. Uh, Coach, how did you feel about this one? I, I mean, I, I agree. I thought it was an extremely fun game. I, I thought it was one of those it was back and forth. You didn't know really how – and you didn't really know how the momentum was going to go. And you didn't really know – just like one team got the momentum and it seemed like Penn State was going to close the game out. They never really did. And it, it was – you know, it, it was definitely interesting for sure. Um, I definitely enjoyed watching uh, Sam Darnold. Man, he is uh, – I got, it's a special cat right there. Yeah, Sam Darnold also has the proper look for a USC quarterback. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, just the fact that he's just all business on the sidelines doesn't really, you know, I mean, I, I think that is, I think that's outstanding. Uh, I think he's got a great demeanor for it. Um, so I, I really, I, I think it was the, the, the bowl game of 
the season. Um, and that's not including the national championship, which we're probably going to get into here in a little bit later. So, um, you know, I'll save that kind of for, uh, I'll kind of save a, a, a certain spot for the national championship just in case it becomes game of the century or game of the season. Um, but right now, the Rose Bowl holding on to that. Title. Yeah, the Rose Bowl was a special game to watch. I was watching it uh, back home with my dad. We watched the Rose Bowl together every year, and it was just uh, so much fun to watch. And you know, as a fan, uh, you know, I really usually don't care for Penn State or USC. And it was I, I, I so I really I had no I had no horse in this race. And I guess I didn't really care who won, which made it so much better for me because I really dislike both teams. But even two teams I dislike could play some uh, really enjoyable football. So that was at least a nice uh, change of pace. But um, that was one tough victory for the Big Ten to swallow. Another one came in the Orange Bowl a couple days prior with uh, Florida State uh, beating Michigan uh, 33-32. to And, uh, you know, curious, curious injury from Jabril Peppers. Uh, he did not suit up in the game because of a sore hamstring. And uh, obviously, you know, there are, you know, we, we talked a little bit about guys like um, Christian McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette playing, playing in their bulls. But this, you know, at least they were upfront about it. This circumstance seemed uh, very strange, Josh. What, what did you think about this one? And you were probably watching with your brother, the uh, Michigan alum. <laughs> yeah, it was. Very, very strange. And um, I think it just goes to Harbaugh. I think Harbaugh is trying to do this newfangled Bill Belichickian style, don't tip your hand, don't give anything away. Uh, By all accounts, he was hurt in practice and tweaked it during the warm-ups. But they never reported that until – they announced that Jabril couldn't go. And then it was like, oh, yeah, this is a re-aggravation. And then he's not on the sideline. They showed him in the booth hiding behind coaches. I just don't get it. And I you know, take the benefit of the doubt with Jabril Peppers that most kids want to be on the sidelines when they're hurt to be with their friends and teammates. So I'm going to go with Harbaugh saying, oh, hey, just – be a distraction of the sideline go up open the booth which is just dumb i think what about you coach i, I think he should have been on the sideline uh, with his teammates and rooting them on and i think i don't want to use the word coward because i think that's a little harsh but i mean i i kind of think it was a little cowardly for him to, to sit there and up in the booth and kind of sit and chilling in the back i mean he should have been there encouraging his teammates and i mean i, I think he should have been right there you know, celebrating with them when they made a good play and just kind of patting them on the butt and saying, hey, you know, let's, you know, we'll, we'll get after it here uh, this next series. Let's go get them. We're still in this thing. I, I think he could have been the emotional leader. And that, you know, you never know. In, in a tight game like that where Michigan made the comeback that they made, that might have, that might could have made the difference, honestly. I'm not saying that it would have, guaranteed, but I mean, it could have, truthfully. Yeah, it, it, it really could have, but, you know, obviously we will never know. Uh, but, you know, one thing I will say about this, you know, Michigan put up uh, one heck of a fight. You're playing a Florida State team that we all thought was one of the three or four most talented teams in the country coming into the year in the state of Florida. It's essentially a home game for Florida State here, and it's, they only lost by one. And obviously, you know, we know that I, I think on paper – at least Florida state has more talent than Michigan across the board. I don't think that's that disputable. Florida state had a couple rough losses early in the year, but their second half of the season, they were as good as anyone else in the country. And I don't think it's, you know, that much of a shame to lose this game only by one, especially when they dom- when Michigan dominated time of possession, almost, you know, nine minutes more than Florida state had. Um, but they were just really not able to stop, uh, you know, Dalvin Cook at the end of the day. And, you know, Dalvin's a tough guy to stop. But, you know, if you're going to contain Florida State, you've got to bottle him up. Because DeAndre Francois did not have a, a, a really great game for him. A lot of yards, 222 yards, only 27 attempts, but only completed nine of those. That's 33% completion rate. Uh, you know, I think Don Brown's defense did a nice job making them one-dimensional. But the problem was they couldn't stop that one rushing dimension. 
But sticking uh, with other Big Ten teams in New Year's Six games, uh, the Cotton Bowl uh, was a solid victory for the Wisconsin Badgers, especially uh, for tight end Troy Fumagalli, who was the player of the game. He was absolutely unstoppable. Uh, Six catches, 83 yards, one touchdown. Should have had a second touchdown. The only incompletion of the day for the Badgers was a, a Fumagalli drop in the end zone um in there in the second quarter uh which ended up turning into just a field goal for the Badgers but they were pretty much in control the whole time and Western Michigan's undefeated dream season comes to the comes to an end the boat just took on a little bit too much water there at the end of the day Josh yeah they did and I mean let's give them some credit though I mean yeah Wisconsin led wire to wire but a lot of that had to do with Wisconsin having a quick, fast punch right away. It kind of stunned them, if we were to use a boxer analogy, getting up 14 nothing. From that point on, the game was pretty toe-to-toe. Um, hats off to Western Michigan. Um, I know a lot of people around these parts kind of scoffed at it, saying, oh, Wisconsin's got the joke of a matchup. And um, in my final poll, I had Western as a top-ten team. I had them way higher than – everyone else, and I stand by that. They they gave Wisconsin fits. The Badgers just started out super sharp. I think it took a couple of those series for Western to kind of uh, get up to game speed because it, if there's one difference between MAC teams and power conference teams, it is going to be that speed and athleticism. Uh, and Western certainly had some of those players, but it wasn't the full roster. But once they got kind of used to that speed, like I said, it it was toe-to-toe. It was a battle. And uh, I'm just glad we escaped that game, quite frankly, Matt. I think if it had been a 70-minute game, we might not have been so lucky. You're right, but I, I still felt like the Wisconsin defense, uh, especially with the pass rush, the defensive line, a guy like Chikwe Obasi, who's been sort of really inherited for the whole year, they moved him down to defensive tackle, and he provided a pass rush uh, up the middle that was, uh, you know, a, a little a little twist for Justin Wilcox's defense. And but it still came down to an onside kick. Yeah, but, you know, it, it was the onside kick. Uh, Badgers got the first down to run out the clock. But still, they would have had to score and get the two-point. And they'd only scored 16 points to that, you know, up to that point in the game. I felt like, you know, Wisconsin pretty much had it in hand for the most part there. Uh, Coach, you catch any of this one? Uh, very little of it. We were we were on the way back from, from Georgia, so I didn't really get to watch a whole lot until that night. Well, let's let, let, let's talk about Georgia then, because uh, the Liberty Bowl was uh, ended up being you know one of the better games between Georgia and TCU, uh, with Georgia having a nice little comeback there in the fourth quarter, uh, you know, on the legs of Nick Chubb. Uh, so tell me what you you know what you saw there out, out of your dogs. Well, I'll tell you what I saw. I saw a team that was completely dead asleep in the first half, um, a, a game that I thought was going to be a blowout. Um, at times in the second quarter where it just didn't seem like the defense was really had any sort of contain on, on, uh, on Kenny, Kenny Trill. Um, you know, the offense went, I think they had a streak of like five or six, three and outs right there in the middle of the first half. Um, just abysmal play calling. And then all of a sudden at halftime, they woke up, came out, played defense. Uh, Lorenzo Carter forced two turnovers, um, in the second half, um, you know, Jacob Beeson was was certainly a lot more uh, crisp and and uh, accurate in the second half. And then, of course, you know, Nick Chubb, 142 yards. He had a 48 yard burst that set up a, a field goal um, late in the fourth quarter. Um, you also had Sony Michelle, who had a uh, who also had a 33 yard one of those catch and run deals where Eason just dumped it to him right there in the flat, and he just turned the corner, made three guys miss, and scored. Um, just the, the two-star running backs were really the story of this game. Uh, truthfully, I, I think the run game, once the run game got going, the offense got going. And that's kind of what, what Georgia's done all year. They, their offense has come and gone with the run game. And uh, those two are coming back for their senior campaign. So um, very surprised by that, um, but also very delighted by that also being a uh, – graduate of the University of Georgia. Well, Coach, my, my question for you is, you know, where was this Isaiah McKenzie all year? 
because it seemed like every time he touched the ball, you know, he was, you know, he was dangerous. He obviously had that big 77 yard catch um, to set up a score, but, you know, I, I didn't feel like, you know, he was this, you know, this utilized throughout the entire season. He was uh, more, it just didn't seem like it at times. Cause he was, uh, you know, he was utilized in different, different aspects. He had a punt return touchdown um, against the raging Cajuns. He had, uh, he had the game winner against Missouri um, and then just various points during the season he was used. He had big, he had big gains. He didn't really show up on the stat sheet because, um, because he didn't score a ton of touchdowns, but he was, he was key in setting up a lot of scores. He was key in getting big time first downs. The, the Missouri game was probably his best game as far as he had, uh, I think he had two or three touchdowns in that one. Um, I, I think he was, I think he was utilized a good bit. Um, actually, I think probably maybe even overutilized because um, on fourth and one against Vanderbilt, they go to a jet sweep to Isaiah McKenzie, who stands about five foot seven, weighs about 160 pounds. And um, I don't think he was, and he couldn't outrun Zach Cunningham had perfect angle on him. And uh, he wasn't going to throw a shoulder and, and get that yard uh, running through Zach Cunningham. So I'm not sure about that play call there, but I'm not sure about the ways that they tried to utilize him. They tried to utilize him a lot in the run game, uh, which went a million different ways. Um, but, I, you know, he, he's, he declared for the NFL draft, and I think he, had some, I think he has some academic concerns, um, which is what's leading to that, I believe. Well, maybe someone like Mecole Hardman can step into, you know, his, his position next year if they want to, you know, utilize him like that. They, they, um, they need to bring him on offense. Um, also, um, Perfectly executed fake field goal. Um, Bryce Ramsey, a quarterback uh, that got relegated to starting punter. He's third-string quarterback. Got relegated to first-team punter, uh, if you can call it relegated. Um, came in as a holder on a field goal um, and uh, set up a touchdown, actually, with a fake field goal. So a successful special teams trick play um, from Kirby Smart, something you don't see a whole lot. Yeah, well, on the other side of the ball, TCU ends what has to be a disappointing season for them under 500. You know, Josh, I think we, you know, we were pretty high on this frog team coming into the year, but they had some, they had some rough losses. Uh, I mean, you know, any, any decent team they played this year, uh, you know, they, they lost to. And so, you know, what do you think they have to do going forward? They'll have another year of uh, Kenny Hill back, but is that really the answer? I was about to say they need to find a new quarterback. I just, you know, we've talked about his headspace, where it is. Like, you know, he ruins their game against Arkansas by getting the dumbest penalty of the world, the throat slash gesture that's called 1,000% of the time. He did it, got a penalty, totally changed the complexion of that game. <clears throat> he had gotten in these modes where he's just a turnover machine. And also, I just don't think the coaching staff really – knows what to do with him. Um, there was a moment where in that bowl game, it was a, I believe it was a fourth and manageable. It was like a fourth and three. And they, they did a, you know, a curls pattern and had him throw from the pocket. And the announcers were saying, why wouldn't they give him a run pass option? Well, I don't think they want to do a run pass option. I think the coaching staff wants a pocket quarterback. And that's just not what his talent is. We see teams that go through this before where uh, once they figured out how to use uh, Boykin, they exploded. It, their offense was through the moon. They need to figure out what they're going to do at quarterback, and then I think all will be right in Fort Worth. Yeah, I mean, I, go ahead, Coach. It's like they had a really system. They just kind of let uh, Kenny Hill just kind of do whatever he wanted to do, and it just didn't seem very organized this year. Um, unlike what they have with Trevon Boykin. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's different offensive philosophy for for them right now, and so um, uh, so I, uh, so one of the things that you know they're going to have to do uh, going forward is try to really figure out you know who they are on offense and get back to the basics of Gary Patterson defense. But uh, we want to switch right now uh, to the last one of the last bowl games we're going to wrap up here, and that is uh, the Outback Bowl where, Josh, I'm just going to let you take it away because Iowa got, uh, got run the second half of this game. Yeah, so I'm going to have to take out uh, my soapbox. So uh, Iowa's last bowl win was 2010. So 
since that game, they've gone 46 and 32, and that's with the assist of a 12 and 2 season. It's a 589 win percentage. That's lower than Kirk's career at Iowa, which is 594. So things aren't going well overall. And then just in their bowl games, 2011, they lost 31 14. They were down 21 nothing going into the fourth. The uh, 2014 Outback Bowl, 21-14, zero first-half points. The 2015 Tax Slayer Bowl, 45-28, seven points in the first half, 21 in the fourth when the game was over. The Rose Bowl last year, we all know how that went, 45-16. They were shut out in the first half, 13 points in the fourth quarter to uh, get the respectable 16 points, if you can even call it that. And then this off or this winter, thirty to three against the Gators. They had two interceptions that generated three points in the first quarter. Squadoosh. After that, that's an average margin of defeat of nineteen point four points per game. Last time I checked, that is damn near three touchdowns per game. That ain't good. Offensive numbers: twenty ten, the last time they won a bowl game, forty ninth. That doesn't sound good, but that's the best number you're going to hear. 2011, 27.5, 58, 58 in the nation. 2012, 19.3, 113. 2013, 26.3, 81st. 2014, 28.270. They go uh, to the Rose Bowl with the 30.9 points per game. That's still only 53rd in the country. And then this year, 24.9, 95th. The problem, ladies and gents, is the offense. And since Kirk has refused to get rid of Greg Davis and has already announced that he's coming back next year, the target of my ire has shifted. And I have come to the conclusion that it's much like other coaches that just get stubborn where he's refusing to get rid of his assistance. I call it the less miles syndrome. And until the head of the snake is cut off, Iowa will not win a national title will not win a Big Ten title. And quite frankly, when you have a month to prepare for a Greg Davis offense, we ain't winning a bowl game with this coaching staff. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been some ugly end-of-the-season losses uh, over the last few years, as you have pointed out. And, you know, it's just uh, – it, it's got to be frustrating as an Iowa fan. Uh, it's also got to be even more frustrating, though, um, and – much more embarrassing to be a Minnesota fan right now. Let's uh, <laughs> least one their bowl game. Yeah, you know what? That was one of the most shocking uh, losses of the year, Coach. You and I were talking about this on the phone the other day. The fact that Minnesota somehow won their bowl game. Uh, our our boy Mike the Pirate's got to take a long look at himself in the mirror after that. But it was clearly a rope a dope. All during that practice, they were actually all during that boycott. They were actually doing four a days. Uh, they, they they were doing something, but it is. Uh, it's another toxic situation. It's, you know, it's, it's not to the level of, uh, it's not quite to the level systemic level that Baylor was, but it is not pretty up there in the twin cities right now. Uh, and you know, uh, outgoing senior, uh, the, uh, the object of much of my ire, Mitch Leidner, uh, ha- had a nice little parting gift for anyone thinking about playing football, in Minnesota, uh, when he says, I don't know why anyone would want to play for them at this point. And I know that he's talking about the administration, but th- this team has been so off base between they're, they're protesting their buddies who gang raped a girl and, uh, you know, everything that they have been talking about there. And I, I, you know, Josh, I know you have some thoughts here on the situation up there, but we know Clacey, Tracy Clays is now out the door. Who wants to take that job? Why would you want to take that job if, you, if you're, you know, P.J. Fleck, who's the guy they want? That's a good question. Um, I guess the best way, because this is still so confusing for a lot of people, but having a Big Ten blog and, and then being one of the, the 14 teams that I cover, uh, I, I've read everything that I can about this. So I was just going to give a really quick timeline uh, for the listeners who just kind of maybe read headlines and aren't too clued in. But um, so – there was uh, a sexual harassment claim made or a sexual assault claim made that the Minneapolis police investigated and there wasn't enough evidence they thought to win at trial. And the kids were suspended during the investigation. And then uh, 
then they were brought back. But there was a restraining order because she worked for the football program in some capacity and was at the stadium on game days. So they weren't allowed to be at the stadium on game day. So then the suspension was kind of reinstated. So they figured out the uh, restraining order got settled. Um, obviously, you can't fire a woman for making uh, those allegations. Um, and so my guess is she just got reassigned within the athletic department. And then those kids came back for a few games. But then the university, every university has a separate a Title IX review board that is sort of this independent investigative committee, and um, they don't have as much burden of proof as a criminal trial. It's sort of like the O.J. Simpson uh, situation where he was found not guilty in a criminal trial, but in a civil trial, he had to pay restitution for the murder of those two people. So that's sort of what the Title IX is, is it doesn't have as much burden of proof. And while they were doing their investigation, they came back and suggested that these kids be suspended. They wanted, I believe, five of them uh, kicked out of the university. And it was the third suspension for these kids. But there was very little communication. And the president of the university and the athletic director totally screwed up this situation by not communicating with the football team. And so from the football players' perspectives, it's their teammates getting a third suspension for something that the Minneapolis police said wasn't enough evidence to make a crime. So you can see why they are confused by that. That's why they had the, pro, the boycott. They said that they, until they got a face-to-face meeting, they were going to have the boycott. Now, yes, hindsight totally misguided, but at that moment of you know, gray area, you can see why the team would do this. What happened is Tracy Clay's caught between a rock and a hard place. It's his team that he's asked to coach and go to bat for going against his boss that he doesn't have the greatest relationship with because he was hired by the previous staff and had such a low buyout that he had to know that there was a sword swinging above his head. So he sent out sent out that tweet saying that he was standing with his team, that he was supportive of their action. Again, hindsight 2020, totally misguided. After that, the Title IX Review Board finally released the big, like, 80-page document that listed all the, um, you know, things that went on at that party and was very clearly disgusting. I read about two pages of it, and that was all I could handle. It was so gross. Um, and once the team saw that, they were like, oh, okay, we agree with the suspension. We go back to work. And that's what they did. And, you know, Tracy Clay's pays the price at the end of the day, I think mostly from that tweet. Uh, the one thing that I sort of noticed during this entire time at some of the press conferences Tracy Clay's has given is Minnesota is a very, very blue state anchored by Minneapolis being one of the most uh, liberal big cities in America. Whether you agree with that, politics or not, that's just a fact. Um, and Tracy Clay's small-town Kansas guy, a little bit of a kind of a square peg in a round hole. I don't think his politics quite matched. Uh, we've seen that happen with some other coaches where they're just in a bad fit. Um, I'm not sure Tracy Clay's would have been the, you know, Newt Rockley of Minnesota. I don't think he would have been there for a long haul. Um, I think the timing was right for the program to get rid of a coach that they really didn't fully believe in because the buyout was so low. Can you imagine if they had won eight or nine games next year? Then they would have had to have re-upped his contract for something big. I think um, I think the university just found a scapegoat in Tracy Clay's it doesn't absolve the university of their sins without question, um, but it is what it is. It's happened. And to your question, Matt, who in the world do they get? I don't know because there's a lot of issues with Minnesota on the field, not even related to this, um, you know, power play by the athletic director, et cetera. You have a state that doesn't produce too many recruits. Uh, 
not too many Texas, Florida kids want to go to a place where they know it's going to be freezing. Um, they have pretty rigid academics that are a lot like Wisconsin, and we saw what that happened with Gary Anderson wanting to get the hell out of there because it was too hard to recruit. Um, so that's three issues right there that are, are going to come into play for recruiting. That makes everything that much harder. If you can't successfully recruit, it makes having a consistent program that much harder. Uh, so I, I, I'm at a loss of who they're going to get. Uh, coach, you know, you know, what would be the benefit for, you know, someone in you know a position who is able to, to to take this job? Why would what what are the what's the upside here in the situation? Well, the only upside I see with this situation is the fact that you're going to be coaching in the Big Ten. Um, the situation with the administration, and the fans, and the school, and the players—it's all a mess. They're all on different pages, and whoever gets it is going to have their hands full. And whoever gets it better be a good salesman uh, to get those kids at least on board uh, playing with you because I think the kids are going to have a hard time or the players are going to have a hard time trusting whoever the administration brings in. Um, I mean, I think the only I think the only scenario would be uh, a full house cleaning, um, but we know that's not going to happen. So, you know, just who bridges the gap? You know, do you get a retired guy that comes in that doesn't care about the whole situation and that knows he's only going to be there a year or two just to just to help bridge the gap back between the administration and the players and try to get some trust back in that program? I mean, what do you do? I mean, I, uh, Matt, you and I talked, and I know this is a complete, complete pipe dream, um, but a perfect guy for that scenario would be Tony Dungy because the kid, he's a Hall of Fame coach and the kids would, would know and respect him. And, and you know with Tony Dungy you're only going to get a year or two out of him, and that's okay. You pay him for that year or two, get your program back in the right direction and set it up for the next guy. Um, if I'm P.J. Fleck, I'm not touching that job um, because there's going to be so many other jobs that open up next year that I could go to that um, in the big time. Uh, Western Michigan, you know, that might end up – that might be where P.J. Fleck wants to fly his flag for the rest of his career. Who knows? We, we don't know. Uh, we can't dive inside the mind of P.J. Fleck, but you got to think that with Notre Dame potentially opening up next year and Tennessee possibly opening up next year, that, that P.J. Fleck has got to be sitting there, um, even UCLA, he's got to be sitting there wondering and just saying, okay, if I just buy my time, have another good season here at Western Michigan, I can have any job I want. If I go to, if I go to Minnesota and I fail and I flop and fall on my face, it's going to look bad. I'm not going to be able to get the jobs that I want. I'm gonna well, and, and, and when you go into Minnesota, you are not set up for success. No, you're you know, not the, sure for success. The only thing is the only the the best part about the job is that they're in the Big Ten West, which is obviously the easier of the two divisions. Yeah, but I mean, they are still they are still you know a step or two behind Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Iowa at least. Now, now here's a name that might I don't know uh, I don't know how realistic it is. Um, you and I were talking again last night about different names, and you know Les Miles is unemployed. He might come in as a rental just come in and, and write the ship, do his thing and, and get out um, just to get his name, just to keep his name in the, in the, in rotation or in, in conversation. Um, if I'm less miles, I think about doing that. Cause right now I'm unemployed and I, I got to do something to keep my name in the ring. So this might be a good situation for him uh, personally. Uh, although it'd be a, although it'd be a huge undertaking there. Um, also, you know, you got to look at coordinators, maybe look at, you know, Mike Bobo, the, the administration knows what Mike Bobo can do. They played him twice, um, and, and the Fighting Bobos played him tough both times. So um, they may look outside the box, go to the Mountain West, and look at somebody they've played that's given them fits. That I, think the other, I think the other name to look out for is Brian Harrison at Boise. Um, the previous Boise athletic director is now at Minnesota, so he knows that. And – Boise hasn't won the Mountain West the last two years. Maybe they're kind of getting back to the pack. Maybe that's an advantageous time for him to jump to the next job. Maybe Craig Bowl. Maybe maybe they're looking for him to get an up, upgrade. They, they they might go completely random and, and hire and hire uh, the Maryland offensive line coach. 
know, they might go something crazy like that. They might have to hire a position coach just to get them out of this mess. Yeah, yeah. because the, you know they, they're in a rough position now, especially when all, most of the moves have already been made. They could have Greg Davis. Yeah, Josh, I know you, offer, you offered him up uh, free of charge, in fact. Um, yeah. You're actually willing to uh, drive and pack up his house for him, I believe, <laughs> and, uh, you know, help, uh, you know, get his direct TV set up at the new place in, in, in Minneapolis. You you know, he, probably, he probably wants to live up in, like, Apple Valley or something. Are you Greg Davis is so old school. He doesn't have direct TV. He's got the old, like, rabbit ears. He's got analog, baby. Well, it's even easier to pack up then. Well, we need to we, we need to pack up from the Big Ten and move on to the national title game where we have a rematch of uh, the last year's uh, game, which Alabama won in stunning fashion, 45-40. This year, uh, Alabama and Clemson will face off again uh, this coming Monday, January 9th in uh, Tampa, Florida, from uh, Raymond James Stadium, and it will be uh, a heavyweight bout to the fullest. Both of these teams easily dispatched with their semifinal opponents uh, 24-7 in the case of Alabama, 31-0 in the case of Clemson, where Ohio State completely no-showed and only ran the ball 11 times, even though they were starting to you know, gain some ground there. On the on gain some ground on the ground, I should say, but the biggest storyline now coming into the game is uh, everyone's favorite punching bag, Lane Kiffin. And basically, Nick Saban said, "Yeah, thanks, but uh, get the f out of here," and uh, you know, handed play calling duties over to Sark after uh, a game that was. You know, it sounds like a lot of people were not very happy with the way that uh, the Kiff called this game. Were they, Coach? No, no, and it was. It was obvious that Kiffin had his mind down in uh, Boca Raton. So um, it was probably good that they, that they got him out of there. Uh, they tried it with Kirby Smart last year, um, who struggled at times, but, it, but he was able to handle it somehow or well enough to, to win them a national championship. And had Jake Browning not been so demoralized and flustered, Washington probably could have won that game. They came out strong out of the gates, but Alabama's defense really just warmed down and just kind of helped Kiffin as he struggled um, because they couldn't generate anything offensively. It just seemed like every opportunity they got, drives would stall. They would turn the ball over. Jalen Hurts played like a freshman, and it just didn't seem like they were totally into it. It, it starts with the top as you, with your coordinator – um, not being all in, and it, and it showed on, on the field in, in the Georgia Dome, but they were fortunate to get out of there um, with the win. And I know it's odd saying that looking at the scoreline, but a lot of that was caused by the defense, turnovers, short fields, things like that really kind of helped the offense just, you know, I, I don't want to say idiot-proof, but it kind of – Washington kind of idiot-proofed that, that game for, uh, for Alabama, and it, it made it seem like that Washington just made it to where – Alabama couldn't screw it up. And I, go ahead, Josh. I was just gonna say I agree a hundred percent with Coach. Um, I was texting back and forth with my dad during this game, and when it was ten seven, late stages of the of the first half, I told him I was like, you know, I like being aggressive. I can't believe I'm advocating this, but I was like, they should just run it up the gut three times, get out of the half. Don't give Alabama one of those momentum-type plays. And sure enough, they threw a pick six, and the game was over by that point. Yeah, that, that, that was the turning point in the game. You know, obviously Washington knew they were going to have to throw the ball because that's probably the only place that they had a talent advantage was that Washington receiving core, which, you know, alongside Clemson is probably the best in the country between John Ross, Miles Gaskin, Dante Pettis. Um, and, you know, they were able to get – you know, the ball in the hands of these guys a little bit, but they were getting nothing on these throws. I mean, Jake Browning averaged under four yards per attempt. You're not going to win, especially against Alabama doing that. And when you throw two picks, uh, it, it just it made it a little bit too easy for uh, Bo Scarborough to, you know, gash the defense. Bo was a, a man among boys uh, in this game. You know, and I, I, I didn't, you know, they, he's sort of been under wraps this year. Damian Harris has gotten the lion's share of the carries in that backfield, but we know that he's obviously, he was a big five-star recruit coming out of high school. And this sets up uh, what 
I think, quite frankly, is going to be uh, another excellent game because Clemson looks like they are ready to go, especially with that defensive line between Christian Wilkins um, and the rest of them. Uh, no matter if they're touching butts or what they're doing, they are definitely uh, going to get after it. So let's uh, let's take a look into the matchup here, Coach. And I want to start with you. Um, who do you think has, uh, you know, who has, uh, you know, the strongest unit on the field, the one that will make the biggest difference? The one that will make the biggest difference is actually Alabama's defense. Um, they're the ones that have been able to dictate the tempo of every ball game they've played in. They've been able to dictate how you play, what you're going to do, what you can do, and then they limit what you can do to very simple things that they keep everything underneath and rally to it and, and they just kind of make you drive it on them. Um, and then a lot of times that creates mistakes. Um, Jonathan Allen is probably one of the best defensive linemen I've ever seen. He's a guy, Dowlin Tomlinson is a guy that is constantly in the face of the quarterback. He's constantly throwing blockers to the side. Uh, I was watching the Washington game and, and they had this, they had this poor true freshman right guard lined up on Jonathan Allen and lined up on Dalvin Tomlinson. And it was, I, it, it was hard for me to watch. I, I felt bad for him because on numerous occasions, he just got chucked to the side at, as they ran, as they ran past him and either, either hawked the running back that tried to bounce it. Uh, Gaskin either hawked Gaskin as he tried to bounce or they were all over Jake Browning and Jake Browning was just running for his life the entire day. Now, I will say Clemson does bring a better offensive line, a way better offensive line than Washington. Um, but I think that for Clemson, their their tall order is to get those two guys blocked. And I know that seems simple, but when you look at how they play and you look at kind of what they do and you, and, and you look at what Jeremy Pruitt does to get those guys in space, they do, they do a lot of twist stunts. They bring a lot of backers. Um, they bring a lot of pressure because they feel good about their secondary playing man-to-man coverage. And they and it allows them to bring a lot of pressure. And if Clemson can kind of diagnose that and pick up some of that pressure and just kind of have a game plan to where, okay, we're, we're going to drive on them. We have the confidence to drive on them. We've just got to hit them and make it hurt to where they're not going to want to – they're not going to want to uh, brush. They're not going to – they're going to want to sit back. And then if – Clemson can force Alabama to sit back in zone coverage and bring minimal pressure. I think that's advantage Clemson. But, uh, you know, the best unit coming in this is definitely Alabama's defense. Uh, you know, obviously anyone trying to stop Jonathan Allen is a fool's errand because that man is uh, – I mean, he is borderline unstoppable. But, you know, I, I think that – uh, as a group, though, Clemson's defensive line might be just as talented as Alabama's, as scary as that as it is to think about it. Carlos Watkins, Christian Wilkins, um, when they decide to bring Ben Bulwer down and occasionally he'll put his hand to the ground and, pass, and r- rush the passer as well, uh, they are, they're, they're pretty beastly themselves. Plus, uh, a guy who has really impressed me in the second half of the season is uh, Cordero Tankersley, the cornerback there for Clemson. He's been an absolute lockdown. Um, you know, and no one, no one's thrown on him. So I'd like to, I, I hope that he is, you know, hopefully matched up one-on-one against Calvin Ridley. That'll be a, a fun match to look at. But Josh, what are you uh, going to be focusing in on here in the title game? Well, I'm going to be focusing in on the fact that uh, tricky Nick Saban, who left Michigan State, LSU, and the Dolphins in a lurch, is trying to pull another one over us. I'm sorry, a offensive, uh, like, you know, he like Spark wasn't even a coach. He was an offensive like advisor. He has no contact with players. You're telling me he had no contact with any players all year long per NCAA rules and can suddenly just slide into the offensive coordinatorship right before the game? It's a total lie. I hope Clemson destroys this team. I'm so sick of Alabama. I, I, I think I think we're all rooting for Clemson here on the podcast, right, Coach? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, anyway, if there's one, if there's one random player that I want to highlight, it's been Alabama's fantastic punter, J.K. Scott. I think with the uncertainty of how aggressive Sark will be, I could see Saban sitting back a little bit and playing some trestle ball, almost knowing that he's got the best defense in the country going. Um, I think it's going to come down to the special teams, and J.K. Scott did a really good job of 
pitting people all year. He's a hell of a punter. I think that's something to keep an eye on. If Clemson starts all their drives deep in their own territory and just kind of runs into what Washington did, which is gain a couple first downs and then have to punt, and then Alabama just pins them deep again three plays later, it's not going to go well for Clemson if it's a field position battle. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes without saying we're all rooting for Clemson um, just because not that any of us hate Alabama. I just think we're a little fatigued by them. Um, I know I don't hate Alabama. I'm just kind of tired of seeing them win. I'd like to see somebody else win. And um, I know it's ba- I know it's bad for recruiting for Georgia if either of them win. So there's no there's no right way to root um, in that regard. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I just want to see a good game. I want to see somebody compete. And I want to see somebody knock off. I'm going to knock off the champs, you know. That's 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 what I want to see, and that's what everybody else wants to see. Yeah, you know, I, I think that it, it's all. It would be nice to have a little change of the guard here. And, you know, Dabo Swinney has built himself up both a staff and uh, a recruiting base that is, you know, a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, they might – you know, it, it's amazing to think that Clemson might have the upper upper hand in, you know, a number of matchups against Alabama, which no one else can really say. And, I, you know, this is, this is Deshaun Watson's time, I believe. I believe that, uh, you know, the, the skill position players that they have, whether it's um, at running back with um, uh, at running back with Wayne Gallman or the guys that they have on the outside between Mike Williams, CJ Fuller, Ray Ray McLeod, even Hunter Renfro, who does all that tricky stuff in the slot for them. Um, you know, they, they've got a chance to be, you know, a team that, uh, to be the team that finally is able to dissect the Alabama defense. And, you know, we've been waiting the whole year for this. This is, these are the top two teams at the beginning of the year, the top two teams at the end of the year. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a fun one, guys. It's going to be a really fun one. And I, I, I for sure am looking forward to watching it. Um, any, any final thoughts here, Josh? I think the big one is Clemson has to avoid what Washington did, which was the backbreaking pick six. If it's a close game at the end of the first, it might go against their common sense, but it's all right to be a little conservative at times to protect yourself against Alabama. It's totally fine. The other thing for Clemson is, uh, Coach and I talked about this during the Michigan Bowl game, we saw a lot of times where Michigan would make a great play but they didn't pay attention to details. And one of them was a strip sack fumble where the kid who stripped it started dancing for no reason. And Florida State was Johnny on the spot, recovered the ball, and a couple plays later, FSU scored a touchdown to help win that game. You know, Clemson, if they make a big play, just make sure you finish the play. Dot your I's, cross your T's, do all that little stuff because we know that Saban's teams don't really beat themselves. Right. I mean, they, this, this has got to be as close to a perfect game as they can get it. Um, it's got to be an extremely clean game for them. And, and when I say clean, I mean uh, they've got to play aggressively. So they're going to get some aggressive penalties, and that's okay. Um, but it's got to be a clean game as far as Alabama doesn't need any help. We know that. So don't give them any help. And, and that's, that's kind of what they force teams into. Like the, the, one, the first pick six that, that Washington threw, um, Browning made a – I don't even want to say a freshman mistake. He made a freshman in high school mistake. He just turned and just flung the ball up in the air with a guy in his face, and it just floated on him, and the linebacker stepped in front of it and took it to the house. And you, you can't do that. Um, you, you can't do that at all. And, and it's uh, – it just – you know, some of these things that, that they force uh, that they force teams into is it just makes you scratch your head. And and I hope Clemson doesn't fall into that trap. If they fall into that trap, it's going to be a blowout. Saban's going to get doused again. They're going to win their third straight national championship, yada, yada, yada. We're going to hear how great Alabama is. We're going to hear that fight song, all that good stuff. But if Clemson can play a, a clean game, they probably have the best chance of, of beating them out of anybody in the country. And, and I'm glad that this, that this is the matchup that we got because now we truly see the two best teams in college football, even though we didn't say that at the, at the beginning of the year, um, we've truly got the two best teams 
in the championship game, which is what we strive for. And, uh, you know, Ohio State got their due. Um, and we talked about them at the beginning of the playoff selection. So I think they got their due. Penn State showed that, you know, they should have been the ones playing uh, Clemson, even though they didn't, even though they weren't victorious. I still think they showed that they they were a better team than than Ohio State um, in the bowl game. And I thought Ohio State had a lot to prove, which just that disappoints me a lot about them. Um, so, but I'm glad we got this matchup. It's going to be a fun one, that's for sure. And, uh, and I hope Clemson comes out ready to play, and uh, they're not too worried about knuckle uh, deep in somebody's rear end. Yeah, well, you, you... coach, I got a question for you actually. Since you mentioned Gatorade dousing. So after Kansas State won their bowl game, uh-huh. they obviously didn't want to get a 77-year-old coach with freezing water. Yeah, they uh, gave him a heart attack. Yeah, they doused him with confetti that was in a Gatorade jug. At what point in the game do you do that? Like, what's the logistics of the people on the sideline somehow preparing a confetti-filled I just want to interject really quick. As someone who's you know relatively superstitious, I would never put the confetti in the in, in the jug because that's just asking to lose. Neither would I. I think it's something you have to do with like two minutes left in the game. Yeah, I, I think they had it out there with them just in case. Um, they probably <laughs> had it stowed away. Like, I hope I hope we can go get this later. But I, I guarantee you they probably they had to either that or they radioed somebody in the locker room and and they poured it in there and brought it out or. I, you know, there's a lot going on, so it could get lost in the shuffle. Um, it'd be a good way to hide it, but you know, it's extremely risky. It's like wheeling out the champagne carts at the top of the eighth inning um, of the World Series. You know, you never know. Um, they did that with Boston in 1986, and Bill Buckner let one go through his knees. And uh, even though that was Game Six, they still they that was the clincher for him, or would have been the clincher for him. And they brought out the I'm sure they brought out the champagne carts, and they had to take them right back out of the locker room. And uh, they ended up wheeling them across the way to the Mets locker room. But I mean, it's just celebrating too early. And they da- I remember the blue, the, the music, the music, the music city miracle. They, I'm sure they were, you know, I'm sure they were uh, dousing. What's his name? Um, I think Levy was still there. Um, no, the music city miracle was, uh, I believe, Wade Phillips, the first or second year at the helm of the Bills. Wade Phillips. So they, I'm sure they doused him with the water, and then they got music city miracle. Um, Guy Morris. At Kentucky, the bluegrass miracle. Yep. Yeah. That, that, that's one that I always remember. He was soaking wet. And he, I, I, I remember him like running out. And then all of a sudden he's like standing there with his hands on his hips, like, oh my God, what just happened? And he's soaking wet. And it's hilarious. Um, you know, I, I hate that for him because I, I kind of like Kentucky's football program a little bit because I think they're, they're an underdog. I kind of liked them the same way I like Vanderbilt, except when they played Georgia. You know, obviously I want them, I want them to go 11 1 every year. Um, just losing to Georgia. That's all. Yeah, man. Well, that, that's got to do it for us here today. Um, so I want to thank you guys for calling in, and we will have a recap show next week, uh, taking a look back on the title game. But uh, for now, on behalf of the coach in Nashville, Tennessee, and our intrepid blogger in Chicago, Illinois, this is the professor in Los Angeles saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.